Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for SpeechTherapyPD.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that. <laughs> but um, it's first bite. So if you log on to speechtherapypd.com and enter the promotional code first bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And Aaron, do that you want to? includes all the pod courses. Yes. And we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that. We have four. We have first we have bite. Yeah, we do. It's speech uncensored. Um, and in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the speech link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like fangirl crush. She's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. All right. So promo code is first bite. Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B-Y-T-E because it does it did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo. there it is. Woohoo! <laughs> Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention, right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Tonight's guest, one of my dearest friends and one of the few women I know who knows me better than I, I know my own self, uh, Miss Crystal Vermilion, M-O-T-O-T-R slash L. And I am thrilled to have you here. And I still don't really remember what all the alphabet soup is. So you're going to have to remind me <laughs> like the hundredth time. But um Tonight, we are covering all things functional and fun by focusing on therapeutic cues. And on a personal note, I can't begin to describe or quantify the positive impact this lady has had on me as a mom, as a clinician, and as a citizen of this world. Crystal's one of those amazing folks who just gets it. No matter what the it is, she always stands up for truth and justice. She's like basically an OT superwoman and she's got like the amazing hair of superwoman. So there's that. (laughs) So let me translate my love into a functional example. And this is raw and this is, um, dang, this is as honest as it gets. She was the only woman who lovingly called me on the carpet for letting Sir Bear, my Mr. Theodore, 
getaway with tantrums and general 20-month-old contrariness when I was feeling sorry for him because of his hearing loss, his delayed speech, and his general case of bad. After a lovely glass of red mama juice, and um, there might have been two, (laughs) at least on my end, she looked at me and said, Michelle, you wouldn't let your patient's parents do this, allowing him to get away with these behaviors. So why are you? And wow, that took my breath away. Now, she said this with warmth and grace and genuine concern, the kind that only a true friend who has significant wisdom can deliver a giant worry with. And it was the first time I was able to conscientiously step back and release the mama guilt I had been carrying about having one tough pregnancy. And I had labor stopped 14 times with that kid to keep him in there, not to mention hormone injections and the whole nine yards. And I felt like all of his hearing loss and all of his complications were my fault. And I know that there's moms out there that are listening that feel that way, but clinically, you know that it's not. I felt bad about his constant ER trips, um, his constant ear infections, but with her guidance, I was able to critically assess that it was my fault. I had enabled his behaviors by making excuses. So long story short, the next day began the restructuring of Bear's world and my parenting style. And the poor kid had one really rude awakening, but he has made tremendous progress since that crucial conversation that night with Crystal. And I shared this deeply intimate story so that y'all know the depth of this woman's phenomenal character. All of her actions are motivated by thought world reflection and desire to see folks built and set for success. Also, as an aside, it takes a lot of love, a lot of love to be that honest with a friend. And I am grateful for that. And now I'm crying. So I love her and I'm excited to share her functional cues. The one that has, um, that one that have mentored me as a mama and as an SLPA with y'all. So Crystal, yay. Now that I've embarrassed you, I've made myself cry. How in the world did a, the Ohio state, isn't that the Buckeyes? That's a Buckeye, right? Yes. Yay. I did it right. Good. All right. (laughs) How did a Buckeye and a University of Pittsburgh graduate end up way down here in the hot and humid South that is the Palmetto State? So hello, baby. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) I have just to say, every time you tell that story to somebody, it makes me cringe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we just told it to the better part of the uh, world. (laughs) Because it's always, you never know how it's going to be perceived. And I've heard you tell this story to people in person. Um, and it could very easily be, well, who in the world does this other person think she is? It could be construed in many different ways. Um, but it ties in so nicely, I think, to our conversation today because it wasn't that I just blurted this out to you. Um, and I think my exact words were, Michelle, when have you ever said, no to the child and it actually meant no and that, mind you this was after months of having lived with you and <laughs> struggle um and him struggle to meet your expectations and you struggle to kind of uh, i guess get them out to him um mm-hmm. and i could have said it in a million different ways <laughs> but i think when we're thinking about cues um you know i did and i asked you that question so i guess i kind of used the guiding on you too to get you identify that um but everything that we say or don't say, the way we move our bodies, where we're sitting, um, the tone in our voice, all of those things are sending messages to people um, and cues about what we're trying to communicate, how important we feel it is. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it's really important to talk about about cues when we're talking about uh, relaying information to people and teaching people how to use information that is being thrown at them. And you threw, I remember that night when you said it, and and you said it probably more accurate than how I (laughs) processed it, but I remember sitting there going, oh, 
And there was a lot of four letter words. And then I was like, uh, yes, I remember the four letter words. Yes, yes. And I was like, oh, snap. I missed that. <laughs> yeah. But it was the first time. And he is, my Theodore is challenging because he is a tiny version of his mother. God help the planet, right? I mean, he'll do if we, and we have channeled this energy for good. So now he, you know, he, and he's really made tremendous progress, but like that next day, and I don't remember what it was. I said no to him about something. And I looked at you and I was like, I need energy and I need strength and God, you better send all the angels. Cause this kid and I, and like, I don't remember what it was, but you were like, just walk away. He'll be okay. And so I walked away and you know what? He was okay. He tantrumed, but he was fine. And the world moved on. And my goodness, two and a half years later, he's, it's, we don't have the tantrums. I can just tell him, knock it off, put yourself in, on the wall, sit there. Also, people out there, if you're listening, a fantastic way to teach counting to your tiny humans is to have them sit in the timeout zone. We call it the wall. And we've practiced counting. And he's up to 25, which I'm pretty impressed. The oldest can go to 110. <laughs> so, like, there's that. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. Okay. All right. So, give us the background on you. You had possibly one of the most interesting walks as an occupational therapist therapist because your undergrad was not in OT. Correct. Okay. So Phyllis, catch, I know that what you did, but catch everybody else up to speed. Okay. I went to the Ohio State University for, um, I graduated with a bachelor's in sociology and I worked in pediatric mental health for four years. So I did a school-based day treatment program. And then I worked in community-based um, supportive therapy, doing individual and family therapy with children and their families. And then we also did um, adventure elements. So I worked at an adventure camp where we used a wilderness bomb program to help teach kids uh, coping strategies to deal with uh, mental and emotional disturbances. And then I, um, through them, I was introduced to occupational therapy and I loved my job, but I didn't really like the role I was playing in their treatment. Um, so I decided to go back to school to become an occupational therapist. And I was at the University of Pittsburgh for three years, um, working in a research lab with uh, cognitive, um, with the cognitive performance laboratory. And actually it's where I kind of learned a whole lot about uh, guiding cues without knowing that that's what I was learning about when I was working on the high ropes course. Um, so not giving people the answers to the obstacles in front of them, but asking them to look at their resources that they had. Um, you know, there's a million ways to get from here to there. How do you want to try to get from here to there? And then um, in the cognitive performance laboratory, we were specifically looking at guiding versus directing cues with uh, patients that were in the chronic and acute phase of stroke. So it was like all of these little places that I'd gone had put me in the right place at the right time. Okay. I think the most, okay. So obviously I know Crystal like really, really well, but like one of my favorite stories was how she got a call one time and you were, it was before you started grad school and they were looking for you because one of your students was um, coming after you with a pair of scissors with intent to harm and maim. And like, yet they said that they redirected her. And by the time she got to you, she was fine and came to with an apology instead of wanting to stab you with said scissors. And so like that one stuck with me because I feel like that story probably um, she must have had a lot of cueing along the way to get from the A to her B and that, you know, yes. Okay. So also, yes, yeah, so that really, I guess, <laughs> you don't really know that children like this exist in the world, um, until you work with them. And I went in, you know, fresh graduate doe, I no idea what I was getting myself into, but I learned so much from these kiddos and I hope that as they're, you know, what, Ten years older now. <laughs> I hope they learned something from me along the way as well. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm sure they did. Okay, all right. So then let's jump into it. Um, all right, now we've worked together, and you know me most days better than like I really truthfully know myself. Um, so that being said, I may or may not have the tendency to be verbose. 
Um, hey, hey, hey. Um, <laughs> so one day we were co-treating a kiddo, um, sweet little guy. He had spastic cerebral palsy, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, extreme prematurity, and a cortical vision impairment. And if memory serves correct, he also would bust out into gospel hymns whenever he was like really frustrated or really happy. And um, I was narrating. I don't remember what I was narrating at the stage of the game, but like I was saying the task over and over and over again. And you looked at me and you were like, why are you doing that? He needs time to process. And I was just happily plugging away, utilizing auditory bombardment. Um, and then you explained to me that constant narration is not necessarily a great thing for all patients. And that latency period is like an actual thing and a technical term. And I was like flabbergasted. So what is latency period? So I think the definition I found, um, the kind of I think most applies is, um, it's like a delay before a transfer of data begins following an instruction for its transfer. So pretty much, I think, it essentially translates to the time it takes for someone to identify that you're trying to communicate with them, that what you're trying to communicate is important, that they have to come up with an action plan, and then they have to execute their plan. So all of those things happen within that time period. So for some of us, that's really, really fast. And for others, I'm sure you can think of a kiddo on your caseload right now or, adult, or children for that matter that takes a really 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 long time or you don't even know if they heard you in the first place okay so i think of when you talk about latency period i think of blues clues and like the super awkward timing Can, did you have you ever seen an episode of blues clues yes Okay. Yeah. All right. So for those of you out there that are not as um, upper middle thirties as I care to admit, um, or Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Yes. They, yes. And they get that long period of time where the kid at home is supposed to respond to yeah where they're at. Yes. Yeah. 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 That that's latency period. That's a very good example of a like what how you could put a latency period into an interaction. Okay. So what you did with me that day was you guided me and we were like, and, and this was a kiddo that you and I were both treating. So, and we were in like this open gym. It was a really fun gym. It was like this open gym. And, um, I think I was working with him on either, um, yeah, we were swinging, like requesting swinging or requesting again. It was repetition with core vocab or something. And uh, I would model, I would ask the question and I would model. And I would ask the question, what do you want to do? I want to go again. And my little like sing song voice, right? And you came over and you modeled for me the question and then you waited a really uncomfortable period of time. And like, I was pretty sure that like crickets were chirping. And then all of a sudden he spontaneously said, what do you want to do? I want to go again. <laughs> and I was like, oh, she's a speech pathologist. She's a honorary SLP. And it was like, it was in there. It just took that little bit longer. And you gave me the rule of thumb, I think to count, was it five seconds or 10 seconds? I can't remember now. But I made it a habit just to go with seven because I could never remember if it was five or ten. So, like, yeah, now, yeah. In a comfortable period of time before you give another cue. Yeah, you're not uncomfortable yet. You haven't waited long enough. Yeah, but then we all have different comfort levels. Yeah. So, like, folks, I mean, try my awkward seven seconds. So I would do the seven Mississippis, which seems like forever. But that for me just happened to work. Okay. All right. So instead of using non-stop verbal cues, like what we're taught in grad school as speech pathologists, like utilize auditory bombardment. Um, for a language acquisition, what are some alternate types of cues that we should offer? And with that, can you tie it into the 
patience and like examples of etiologies that we should consider using these cues with? Mm -hmm. um, I think that this type of cue works or just thinking about cues and breaking them down works with probably every single one of your patients, but there are ones that you're different things are going to work for different kiddos, I think. Um, okay. And there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with auditory cues or using auditory bombardment. I think the problem comes when potentially you have a child who doesn't recognize that auditory cues are being directed at them or that they are important information that they need to do something with. And if you don't get them in that right spot, then all of that bombardment isn't going anywhere to teach them what it is you're trying to teach them. So I always think about cues in terms of like layering them or like a hierarchy. And I know that there are hierarchies out there um, that exist um, already. Um, and I think figuring out the first thing that works for the kiddo you're working with that gets their attention. Um, I think that the highest one is always touch. Um, touch is very powerful, the physical direct cue. So I like to, you know, grab, grab their hands and give them a couple quick squeezes. Most of the time, even um, our kiddos that avoid eye contact, it's um, are going to turn and they're going to look directly at you. And you've got that quick period of time to tell them what you're going to say that's going to be important. So okay. I always start with their name. I, I have seen her do this. And what she does is often she does it bilaterally. And so she and she pushes her thumb into the middle of their palms and she's not light touching. It's like moderate pressure. And like, she's like squeezing it and squeezing their hands and honest to goodness, use this with your kiddos that don't make eye contact. And I can't remember the name of the reflex, but I actually researched it after you showed it to me and mm -hmm. there's a reflex and it actually, in most kiddos, even my nonverbal kiddos that when you squeeze the center of their palms, um, pretty moderately, and slowly they will look at you and it's like it's almost as if they come out of a fog in the process it's yeah. it's phenomenal i had I, one yeah i like, didn't what it was i just kind of by mistake was doing it one day and they looked at me and i said their name it's how you get them to recognize that their name means that you're talking to them getting ready to tell you something important yeah or, or gesture something important but that's how you got to figure out what it is that's going to get their attention. And then you give them one quick, simple command, and then you wait to see if they do it. If they don't, then you go back to getting their attention with whatever worked for them. For me, it's sometimes the palm squeeze, they look at me, and then I'm going to try again. I'm going to wait longer. And then I'm going to add on to that. And the next time I'm going to take them, if I'm saying, you know, go to the swing or sit, I'm going to give them a quick squeeze, give them the command, and then help them do it. Okay. I'm just thinking the spaghetti noodle kiddos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I'm troubleshooting this in my head how, like, I have one little guy in particular that redirecting him and he's got fiery red hair. He's a pistol dude. <laughs> and, like, and I, and I did that with him and he looked at me like, have you lost your mind? And then like looked away and I was like, Oh, Oh, I need a little more here. <laughs> so like, Okay. All right. So hand squeeze or touch. What about, what about touching? Um, I know that when you and I've seen our friend Paul, and Paul's been on here too, when he <laughs> talks about the Wilbarger brush, am I saying that right? Brushing Wilbarger brushing protocol. Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 yes. There's it's very distinct in um, directions and things like that, and you're not supposed to go. Um, like, and, and he explained it all to me. Like, yeah. you go to your feet, extremities, internal. Um, what about, um, gestures on the shoulders? Because I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of grandmas. If the kiddo doesn't respond the first time, they grab them by their shoulders and whoop them around. Um, I don't like to spin children on a top, um, including my own tiny humans. Cause that makes me dizzy and want to vomit. But like, 
would bilateral pressure on the shoulders to like turn them? Is that okay? Where is that in the physical touch hierarchy? Is that, I mean, again, I would slowly. So if you are spinning somebody, then you're adding, you're adding another type of sensory input, your vestibular system. Um, So, you know, gently pushing down on their shoulders, get their attention. Um, But I would do that facing them. Okay. At first. And then if they're not responding, then, you know, you're putting, you're putting pressure down and then moving really slowly with them to, to get them to where you want them to go. Um, But in terms of getting back to like, um, you know, using, you were mentioning auditory bombardments and that is not my area. I do not know. Um, When I look it up, it says that they are to teach um, auditory sounds mm-hmm. so like phonemic b- bombardment that's like when those really amazing slps that can do like speech sound awareness and treat phonological <laughs> and arctic disorders and we both know that that's not me <laughs> um uh, and they like drill the sounds at them i mean you can do it from like isolation consonant vowel cbc and then beyond and that i don't there know there is research that that backs that up i'm saying get them to a point where they are ready to receive that information and then do that. Yes. Not instead of narrating everything. If you're focusing on a certain sound, you get their attention, you make that sound and then you add either a picture or other tools that you guys have in your toolbox and only narrate the parts in that session that are relevant to that sound that you're trying to teach for that session. Yes. Cut down on the fringe. Yes. Hmm. It's like a good theory in life. Cut down on the fringe. The whole less is more. (laughs) (laughs) And this is why I love Marie Kondo. Yay. Oh, we've got a pile of laundry. (laughs) No, I call dibs. I'm coming up there shortly. (laughs) Just say you have fabulous clothes. If you're going to purge, I get first call. Okay. All right. So what other types of cues can we give? Because I know you do have talked previously about therapeutic presence and how you use your body and your positioning and your stance to reassess. And like, so what, and you have given me that feedback, like think about how you enter the room, you enter the session, you enter the home, how you use your full body to deliver cues. So can you talk to like the mindset with which you go into a session? Sure. Um, if it's with kiddos that let's say they're very easily distracted, for example, this is an easy one. Um, you already know that when you walk in, there's a commotion at the door, they're probably going to be drawn to it. Um, if there are things that are like TV or siblings or things like that, sometimes I might position my body to be in between them. So maybe I can't get, you know, mom to turn off the TV because there's other kids in the room. Maybe I'm in a large therapy gym. Um, but physically using myself as a block or sometimes that just draws their attention past your shoulder, flipping it so that they're facing the opposite direction. So they're facing like the wall and you're facing all of the commotion on the other side. Um, so that's one way that you can set up the environment. You can, um, you know, place items that you want their attention to be drawn to, you know, the, the basic things that we all know, um, hiding the rest of the things in your bag for kids that are easily distracted, um, for kiddos that are very under stimulated, um, maybe it, they just, you know, the low tone kids that don't really attend to a whole lot. It takes a lot to get them engaged. I would say do the opposite. Maybe you could do a little bit of the opposite with them. I always start um, sometimes with sound or movement with them. So, you know, making kind of a little bit of obnoxious sound to get them to look at the thing that you want them to play with, um, you know, banging a spoon against it. Um, if you're like on a swing, the things that you can do to get them more activated. Okay. So you, you talk about the swing and that's one thing that's always, um, worried me. Um, I have, if I know that an OT is using like a swing to kind of get my children that have, um, um, 
like you said, low tone or not engaged as much. I mean, I'm thinking of some of my like kiddos that have, um, it's not flaccid CP. Is it hypotonic CP? Yeah, kids that have hypo. Yeah, that are low tone hypotonia. Yeah. Um, and some of my little ones that have had Down syndrome, um, I have seen um, where some fabulous OTs, yourself included, get them in the swing and you, you swing them in a certain direction. And with the advice given, don't necessarily swing them, like spin them in a circle on the swing, unless you know, like exactly what you're looking for, because it could overstimulate or bad things could happen. Um, and I, there's something about what, what is the thing with like, if you spin them in a circle, their eyes are supposed to twitch a certain way or what is that? What is, why do you put them in the swing? Because it's really confusing. I mean, it's so far out of the world of SLPs. I just genuinely want to know why. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that whole lot with cueing, but it does give your body a lot of cues. Um, uh -huh. They're activating your vestibular system that's in your inner ear. It's our learning system. Um, when I was in in grad school, my CI actually gave me this great example of, um, you know, when you're asleep and you sit up in the morning, you're changing your head position from laying down to sitting up pretty quickly. And mm -hmm. so your body's like, all right, here we go. We're, we're going today. Or you hear an ambulance and you turn your head real fast to that direction, you are alerting your body that there could be danger. Um, that was Miss Allison who gave me those wonderful examples. Um, but when you're putting the kiddo on a swing, if you're going, those are examples of quick ones, but if you're going slow and in a certain rhythm, that can be calming to kiddos. So that would, could potentially make those kiddos um, even more tired or not impact them at all whatsoever. So I think the spinning is referring to kind of like jarring that fluid in their inner ear quickly. Um, and it's a form of like kind of arousing them, but any kind of erratic movement. So if you're swinging them, um, sometimes, you know, long pushes back and forth and you stop quick and then you go real short, slow ones, or you go side to side, like you're constantly changing it up. It's kind of keeps that fluid in that ear moving in different directions in an unpredictable pattern. So the body has to be alert to what it's doing. That's awesome. Okay. All right. So here's what I know, folks. I would love to utilize interprofessional practice with my OTs after they had had an OT session. Because often what I found was that when we were in a clinic and we had access to a swing or if I could back up to their sessions at home after they had had a session at home and the child had a swing available to them, if they were low toned and required a little bit more to get engaged, if they had had that erratic gestures on the swing, um, when I walked in the door, they were alert and it would require less um, cues on my part to get them engaged because they were like alert and ready for learning. If, if, am I saying, am I explaining that? Okay. Like this. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever I think about using the swing, so that in and of itself for me wasn't a treatment. It was really just a way to get them to get into that like sweet spot of attention and preparedness for the kids <laughs> that I was going to give them. You said <laughs> sweet spot of attention. Where I need to be to give them the information that, that I want them to believe is important. Um, but it doesn't have to be a swing. You could use a, you can use your lap. You can pick them up in your arms. They're little enough in that, you know, that mom rock, but you know, mix it up, make it real erratic, um, you know, spinning, um, wrapping them up in like a blanket, like a hammock with another person over the couch or something. Um, it doesn't have to be a swing. Yeah, I have used a bed sheet and it was definitely not a very clean bed sheet and like <laughs> swung a kiddo in a bed sheet with like, you know, an OT when we like overlapped in sessions on purpose. So that way, like we could, you know, get you know, our, our joint goals met, but, um, yes, but that, I mean, if you guys have not SLPs out there, if you have not yet co-treated with an OT, do yourself a solid, it will change your clinical delivery. And I, I know we had Paul on here to like explain what an OT does, but like my best summation of that episode is 
If you have a kiddo who's having a hard time engaging in the world, their job is learning and their job is to engage in the world. And OT's job description is basically to help that child learn to engage. And those touch cues and the getting them aroused or getting them regulated by engaging vestibular, whether it be through swinging or touch or all the the other different cues, that's it will blow your mind. I like how I'm signing as if y'all can see me signing right now. But like, and it's not just with the kiddos that, you know, traditionally you think of with OTs, like um, kids um, with spectrum disorders or kids with attention disorders. I work in orthopedics now and I still use um, cues and teach parents constantly about using guided versus directed cues. And I still use different types of sensor input to get them to the spots where I need them to be to teach them new skills. Um, Instead of using words, I'm using touch a lot more with using my hands to help them learn new movement patterns um, through their muscles. But again, it's if this kiddo is all over the place, how do I get them to, how do I get their nervous system to recognize that where I'm putting my three fingers is really important and that their brain needs to process it. I have to break all that stuff apart and give their bodies time to, to process. You said two words, guided versus directed cues. Mm-hmm. Sure. What are those? What, what is, what is the difference between those? So the difference between the two um, guiding would be, I am using questions. I might use um, <laughs> or touch. To kind of get you to identify the answer yourself versus directed. If I'm teaching you how to put on a shirt, saying put your left arm through this hole, put your right arm through this hole, grab it like this, put it over your head. Those are all directed cues or gestures because I said hold it like this. So I'm showing them how to hold it. That is a direct um, gesture. Um, If I take their hand and do it for them, then that's a direct gesture. and I'm doing it for them. Whereas if I were, you know, I'm going to throw a shirt at you and I'm going to say, all right, you know, what do you want to do first? Do you want to do your head first? Do you want to do your arms first? They get to pick. So they are saying, you know, arm. Okay. Well, which one, how do you think you want to try to put it on? Um, and even if it, even if it takes longer or they do it in the way that I wouldn't do it or that it's wrong, like even by doing it and making the mistakes, they're recognizing that that's not the way to go. And they're problem solving so that they can not only figure out how to put that shirt on, but they're more likely to figure out how to complete tasks that are novel and that are not their shirt, like their socks or how do I make a sandwich? Um, They're able to go through that same process. You use guided cues on me. (laughs) On everyone. And I don't even need to do it anymore at this point. Oh my God. I love it. I laughed so hard. I snorted because it's true. I've seen you do it. (laughs) I don't have to stop now. I can thank um, Dr. Skidmore at uh, Pitt for that because that was what we did in her lab and what we did on the high ropes course back in Columbus, Ohio. Everything in my life for a long time has been about guiding and didn't even know it. Okay. All right. So I'm just going to throw it out there. When Mm -hmm. I made this switch as a parent with Bear, I felt like I was back in dog training classes with Dog and Chewy. And I had Chewbacca, who was a standout stellar student. They recommended I make him a therapy dog. And Dog, who didn't pass basic because she was so cute that even the dog trainer just kind of gave up on her. (laughs) And you've lived with us, so you know that those are accurate, succinct conclusions for our dogs. But like... That's what it felt like with Theodore was I was having to relearn because he was so different than Goose, you know, and, and I know we're not supposed to compare our children, but to every parent out there, you compare your children. It's a thing. It's a trap, right? And so, but that's what it made me think of was dog training, but dog training my son and me. And how to do it. And you were very supportive of the entire process. So thank you. Well, when it comes down to it, behavior change is behavior change, whether you're a dog or a toddler or an adult. Um, and, you know, you have to give cues about 
to the world and expectations to get a response. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm training my own lovely puppy, who is her own version of hot little mess. (laughs) um, Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's very much, I think about the cues. I'm like, all right, well, I'm, I'm giving her a cue that like, I don't like her to do that, but I want her to do more of this. And you know, when she chews up something in my home, I'm like, well, that's my fault. Like she knows what I don't want her when she has an accident in the house. Like I've trained her that I don't like it when she does that, but I didn't tell her what she needed to do to tell me that we needed to go to do something else. Um, And actually today she rang the bell to go out for the first time. Wait, you had trained your dog to ring a bell to go out? (laughs) And I did. She like puts her little nose on me like, Okay, so is that guided or directed cues, by the way? Well, now she's directing me that she needs to go to the bathroom. Oh, <laughs> oh, so it's a complete flip. Oh, Lord Almighty. Okay. I had to. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is great. Okay. All right. Squirrel number 432 for first bite. All right. All right. So are there any other types of cues that we need to cover before we go into the dysphagia question that I'm like dying to ask? Let me make sure. So visual cues, we know what those are. Um, showing, you know, I like, I think too, like language, sometimes you have kids that are not verbal or you're teaching them signs. So maybe instead of going to verbal and touch, you go verbal to a gesture mm-hmm. or a picture. Um, but pick the thing that is the most important and you have it ready. So as soon as you have their attention, you're drawing it to that thing that is very important so that they know that it's important. And then you're going to show them after that, what to do with that information. Mm-hmm. Um, gestures, um, you mentioned modeling. Um, so I would, to me, that kind of feels like gesture. And if you're adding touch, it's like a tactile cue. Um, and then the full on physical, I believe that's, you know, you're doing hand over hand assist essentially. So that's a movement tactile. So just be aware of like all of the layers of cues that you're giving to a person all at once. And if they're not doing what you want them to do, go back to the basics and think, how can I strip layers of these cues away and get to the one small part of it so that I know that I have their attention, that they recognize that what I'm trying to tell them or teach them is important, and then add on to it from there. Hey, I'm not sure if you've caught the updates yet, but I have the pleasure, if you haven't seen it already, of announcing the 2020 SpeechTherapyPD.com Conference at Sea. We are going aboard a Royal Caribbean Alaskan cruise Departing Vancouver, British Columbia, July 10th through 17th of 2020. And I am thrilled and humbled to be announcing that I will be presenting. I have a a three-hour course, a two-hour course, a one-hour course, and I'm co-presenting another three-hour course. And my co-presentation will be with the one and only Lee Ann Porter of Speech Uncensored, which is Speech Therapy PD's newest adult pod course podcast that just added to our lineup. And Marisha McGordy, the guru behind SLP Now, will also be there. And if you register before September 30th, then you get a free six-month subscription to SLP Now. So again, make sure that you register before September 30th of 2019 for the Speech Therapy PD conference at sea, um, which is July 10th through 17th of 2020. And I cannot wait to see y'all aboard a ship where we're going to see real life bears and like, hopefully we'll get to see Northern lights. So whoop, whoop, see you at sea. Bye. I had a thought and I lost it. Oh, wait, it's back. Okay. Um, signing time. Cause you mentioned sign language. Um, folks, if you have a child that is aided, whether it be cochlear or hearing aid, or if you have a child that you suspect, uh, hearing impairment and they're going through the diagnostic process, or 
you're like me and you just really love total communication access uh, for all children, regardless of etiology, because I'm a huge fan of um, jumping right in with um, uh, verbal, the auditory bombardment piece, as well as signing and um, speech generating or non-speech generating AAC as soon as possible. Uh, if you have not seen it, signing time does has fantastic core vocab DVDs. And for the most part, you can find them on YouTube or folks can check them out at their local libraries. And what I love about the DVDs or the shows, however, which way you want to stream it, they are not incredibly visually stimulating. Like it's bright colors. There's some core colors. There's lots of yellows and blues. Uh, if you have a kid that has a cortical vision impairment, but it, it does offer what you and I would perceive as an awkward Q and a time, which gives them time for their latency period. That's necessary as well as when, and forgive me, I cannot remember the name of the interpreter off the top of my head, but she has wrapped brightly colored tape, certain fingertips, like just below the um, fingernail. And so when she's signing, she's giving bright visual cues and the songs are incredibly repetitious. So it's core vocab um, that is modeled um, verbally as well as visually. And if you were to engage part of that into your therapy sessions and you could use the hand over hand or the tactile component to help that child reach their functional core vocab, it's just... It's amazing. I've had I've had a couple little kiddos expand their immediate core vocab, and you know they're going to modify it according to their fine motor skill set. And that's not me. Super below the clavicle. That is the OT world. But what I have found is that if I talk to the OT and I say, "Hey, we want to work on this, but it's kind of hard to do some of these signs." I mean, try signing purple. And I know purple is not a core vocab, but like for some little girls, purple is key because fashion sense happens at two, apparently. Um, purple is a really hard sign, but working with an OT to help that child overcome, and Crystal helped me out here, like a hemiparesis post-CVA, like when their hands are really contracted and they're trying really hard to like, you know, point, um, they can help give you strategies to help that turn that into a functional gesture. And Okay, it's just really cool. I really, really, really like their DVDs. <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah, I highly recommend it. So everybody out there, go support signing time. <laughs> okay, all right. So then let me roll into our next question. Um, for our kiddos that have oropharyngeal dysphagia and have difficulty with that first stage of their swallow, and folks, I'm talking, you have four stages in your swallow. You have oral preparatory, which is hand to mouth, oral, everything within your mouth. I kind of basically think of it from lips to um, posterior fascial pillar. Then you have the pharyngeal stage all the way down to your um, upper esophageal sphincter. And then you have the esophageal stage, which goes to your lower esophageal sphincter. And if you squirrel, but if you have not uh, read up on esophageal stage dysphagia, please do so. Because what we're finding is that a lot of our children that present with an oral stage dysphagia, in fact, have underlying GI and or esophageal concerns, huge soapbox. But our children that have difficulties with that first stage of their swallow, the oral preparatory, they need um, cues and supports there. Uh, and I'll be honest, I feel that this is the part where SLPs and OTs should be collaborating because one, it's below the clavicle and that is not exactly an SLP strong suit. And two, I firmly believe, and y'all check the data, look at the evidence behind non-speech oral motor exercises and their use in uh, feeding dysphagia therapy and go check out feedingmatters.org. But I firmly believe that we should be teaching the child to feed themselves. We should not be throwing plastic in the kid's mouth and having them chew on it 14 times, which way, then another way or whatever. But that oral prep, we need help with. So lots of soapboxes. Crystal, back to you. 
like, wait, what was the question? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I was so frustrated and angry all in one. <laughs> and I was like, Rawr. okay, so with that oral prep stage, picking food up or a drink and getting it from hand to mouth, what kind of cues and supports can we as SLPs give there? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, many options. Okay. Um, and I think it's going to, I would probably approach this in, in a couple of different ways. So okay. first you have to figure out how much support they need. Um, and I would do that first by, you can actually you can do it one of two ways. So you can start the farther away from their body if you're looking at their hands. So if you're like holding someone by the wrist uh, and you're moving the wrist, essentially um, you're kind of supporting their elbow and their shoulder also, right? Because it's attached. Mm -hmm. If you hand up and you're just supporting their shoulder, then they're not getting any support. And if they're, you know, flaccid or low tone or they don't know what they're doing, then their the rest of their arm is free to do whatever. Um, so you're going to work within that area for hand to mouth. So if they need a lot of direction, you're probably going to hold around their wrist and their hand or maybe even over their fingers to help them grab and pull it, right? And you can bring it up. Maybe they need another hand at their elbow also so that you know um, they know that movement. And you're going to repeat that several times because at that point, it's not that they necessarily understand that you're trying to get their hand to their mouth, but maybe their, their body doesn't understand and can't process that movement or coordinate it. And then the hope is that you can give them less assistance over time so that you can move their hand, your hand away from their wrist, maybe just support their elbow and they know what to do with their hand. Um, okay. So, so I, I have questions on the technicality of that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you're talking about hands, one, I think that we should find out from the OT which hand is dominant and use that hand um, mm -hmm. because that's crux. Because sometimes, when is when is hand dominant supposed to be established by? Like, um, usually it's usually all the way established by five or six, but they show preferences earlier. Okay, all right. So play to their strong suit. Have the conversation with the OT. But when you're talking about giving the cues, um, that confuddles my brain. How should we, how much pressure should we apply to their body? Like how much, um, okay. I, I think why I worry about this is in, this was huge in the SLP world. We got, um, there was guidance about 20 years ago on the use of hand over hand for accessing an AAC device. And we were taught basically like you put your hand over the kid's hand, but then it wasn't necessarily the child making their own choice with the AAC device. It was kind of like us Ouija boarding the kid to like our decision. Like you see what I'm saying? And, mm -hmm. and then they were like, no, 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 no. It, the child needs to make the decision, let the child lead and, and those kind of things. So like, mm -hmm. That's my worry. I don't want to Ouija board the kid. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm not saying Ouija board or force force feed these kiddos. But when you're in <laughs> a normal meal time, it would be appropriate to be eating. And add whatever cues you want to it. Maybe you're also working on language at the same time. And this could be a time where it's good to narrate. And you say, you know, first, I'm going to pick up my spoon. And then you help guide them to pick up their spoon if they can't. Or you let them if they can. Okay. Once they've done that, now I'm going to, you know, scoop my food or whatever the next part of it is and, you know, wait for them to respond and then determine how much help they need to do it. And then you add the next part onto it. Okay. So that you're not just doing it all for them. Um, or one part of that that you're going to do and you do the rest. I have a little guy that I treat on, um, I see him twice a week. He's the only kid I see twice a week. And he is one, the cutest baby you've ever seen. And he's not a baby, but like five. Okay. He's still a baby. Uh, and I've co-treated with his OT who is just lovely. And we have had to troubleshoot which bowl to get him to use. And it was a thought I had never had. And I explained we're working on independence with Pio. Like I want him to independently feed himself because once he's comfortable with that, then we'll be able to progress out to like more challenging foods. But he couldn't scrape the bottom of the bowl. Like he didn't have the dexterity to like tilt the bowl towards him 
with one hand without spilling the entire thing in his lap. <clears throat> and she suggested this awesome, it's like a shallow soup bowl mm -hmm. and it had handles and he could hold on to the handle. And then, and I was narrating scoop. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we sing some songs. I'm like from the right to the left scoop and scoop, scoop from the right to the left and scoop, scoop. <laughs> like, dude, what? You know that's great. I learned a lot of songs from you over this job. I use that same scripting. I still narrate to patients when they can't verbalize them themselves. So we taught each other a lot. <laughs> yeah, but your, your sing-song voice is a lot better than mine. So like, there's that. Oh my gosh, that's embarrassing. The thing about that, you mentioned, you know, working, you know, with occupational therapists. Mm -hmm. The good thing about you know, working in, in rehab and therapy in the settings that we're in is we don't have to have all the answers. We don't know. We don't have to know how to do everything. All of the pieces. So just know what your resources are and how to, to find the answer to what you need. You're like, you know what? If you notice, like, I can't, this kid can't scoop this food out. You don't have to know all the adaptive equipment out there find someone who does and ask them the same, you know, for us when I'm, you know, working with a kiddo and I can't get them, I don't know how to get them to communicate, you know, with me or, um, am I, you know, cognitively, am I expecting them to do something they can't, how can I change things up? Like, I don't have to know all of that, but I, I do have to take responsibility to identify that I don't know everything and that I can't solve that problem. And then it's my responsibility to bring in someone else who does and ask for help. That, that deserves a thunderous round of applause because in the world of home health, you, well, heavens to Betsy's, you know how isolating that is, or you feel like you are the sole person responsible. And then for some reason you start taking on the entire weight of all therapy, like on your shoulders, like you have to on the fly fix it. Um, okay. So unsolicited advice, but it's solid any which way you spin it. Um, when I have struggled in the past, and I've made sure that I had permission on my patient intake forms. I have taken real quick videos on my cell phone of what I'm working on, especially with that hand to mouth. Um, there's one fascinating spoon out now, and I know I shared it a while ago. It's not the OB because the OB is the robotic arm, but it's another, it's a stabilizing spoon and it was designed for patients that has Parkinson's, but the pediatric implications are profound. Uh, as well. And they're wicked expensive. What are they like 75 bucks for a spoon or something? But when the kiddo picks it up, it can stabilize while they're bringing it to their mouth. Um, and I, prior to this coming out, you know, I would take a, a snippet of a video and send it to you or send it to Paul or, you know, whoever I'm thinking of, um, the lovely Miss Amy, who her and I have co-treated with and say, all right, this is my struggle. What can I do to address this? Or how, how, can, how can you add this component in that oral preparatory stage into your sessions? Because one thing that, one thing that I have come to find out, I may assume incorrectly that that's being covered in OT, but OT could be working on perinatal care or how do you transition onto and off of a toilet because that's crux for the kid in order to go to kindergarten They have to, or preschool. They have to be able to wipe themselves or at least put themselves on the potty. And, and they may not even know that that's an issue because the OT has been working so heavily on this other life skill. And by having that communication and visually showing them where your struggle is, you know, I've had, I mean, Paula sent me videos back of, he's roped, he's roped his sweet daughter into like, like being the, like the test dummy. <laughs> like, he's like, all right, hold the kid here and then do this. And then like, Hallie, bless her heart, just kind of is like, yep. <laughs> but like that, having that, that's a great resource for interprofessional practice. 
And so you make sure you one, have legal permission to take the video and send it to the other team member. But I mean, if you don't have permission, then ask the mother or the father or the, you know, caregiver to take a video on their cell phone. That way they have it and then they can share it between professionals. Um, yeah. And even if you don't have a video, even just asking, you know, basic questions about, you know, you don't have to have a video to ask other people for advice. Yes. Simply asking. Yes. Because we all know that's a strong suit in females is admitting that we don't know the answer to something. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'll admit I'm an educated um, person, but uh, I definitely do not know the answers, which is why we have all of these episodes because I'm Mm -hmm. on a thirst for more. Okay. All right. I have to be conscientious of our time. What have we not covered that we need to cover? Hmm. Is there anything? Is there anything? You have like a billion speech pathologists listening. I mean, like not really, but like there's definitely a fair few of them out there. What do you wish that we knew about the field of OT? What what do you wish that we knew to help y'all do the thing you do? I think in general, you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, understanding what occupational therapy is and does. Um, I mean, really your job is, I think all rehab professionals, our job is to look at the whole child and everything that they have to do within their environment and helping them function best within it, whether it's, you know, functional speech or functional mobility to get to the things that, you know, they like to play with or all of those things together. Um, And I know that especially when you work with kiddos, you know, there's overlap a lot. And I think that that can be a really good thing as long as you're communicating with the rest of the treatment team. I know that we used to do it a lot. Like what words are you focusing on? What are, what do you, what are you doing? How can I incorporate that into my day? Because we all talk to our patients. Um, We all have to move them and interact with them and handle them. How do we best do that? Yes. So that we're all working towards the same goals. Yes. Okay. Now I have one last question. What does M-O-T-O-T-R-L, what what is that? (laughs) I realized like uh, at the end, I was like, I don't think we ever told them that I was an occupational therapist. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's listed in all the advertisements for everything. So like, you know, there's... So M-O-T is a master of occupational therapy. Okay. The O-T-R means I am registered with our national board certification and the slash L is for licensure. So I'm licensed in the state of South Carolina currently. Ah, okay. Because I know there are some that do not have the masters in OT, but they're O-T-R-Ls any which way. Is that, was that like a grandfathering, like, or did evolution? Um, so you have to have a master level degree right now for entry level OT, but it doesn't have to be a master in occupational therapy. It could be a master of science in OT. Could be okay. it could be any different master's level program as long as it is accredited. Gotcha. So they're not MOTs, and they were some bachelor's uh, degrees that were grandfathered in, and now we have entry level OTD as well. Okay. So I know the PTs have gone that route. So now most mm-hmm. PT programs are PTDs. Um, DPTs. DPTs. Why does it have to be so confusing? Yes. No. Yeah, I, I kind of, I give it 10 years and SLPs will probably be doing that. But I mean, case are off. <laughs> One follows the other. Huh? Yeah. Yep. 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 I'm, I'm going to keep my opinions out now. <laughs> Okay. All right. Sweet friend. I love you. Thank you so very, very much for doing this. And, um, um, thank you for helping me. Sweet little boobaloo. Um, he, you know, I don't know where he would be today if it was not for you, sweetie. So thank you. I'm sure he would be fine. Yeah. He wouldn't be quite as fine. He's so a lot more stress. Well, good luck with your puppy. May the peanut butter forever be in your favor. 
<laughs> All right, hold on. Let me switch over to questions, okay? Okay. I have an update from feedingmatters.org. Are you trying to find a provider near you who routinely and frequently evaluates and treats pediatric feeding disorders? Feeding Matters Provider Deck Direct. Just kidding, Chad. You got to scratch that one. <laughs> I should not record at the end of the day. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Oh. Michelle Dawson, you're all things peds SLP here. And I have a solution to a problem that probably frustrates you because Lord knows it frustrates me on at least once or twice a week. So here's the solution. Are you trying to find a provider near you who routinely and frequently evaluates and treats pediatric feeding disorders? Well, Feeding Matters Provider Directory is the tool that you need. It's comprehensive, easy-to-use database of feeding centers and healthcare professionals. The Provider Directory allows you to search by location and filter by services offered, preferred specialists, and diagnosis. Start your search by visiting bit.ly backslash, I swear I'm going to get that thing right, uh, FM Provider Directory. And make sure that you submit to be listed too. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind.